So the topic that I want to talk about today is disease. So not disease the thing, but disease the concept. And this is a fraught topic. And it's fraught because it straddles biology, medicine, morality, and culture with disease theorists kind of angling from many different disciplines, deploying different methods in the service of completely different programmatic goals. And this creates a situation that's particularly conducive to talking at cross purposes, not only in exchanges between philosophers and non-philosophers, but also between ethicists and philosophers of science. And it's caused some discussions of disease to become rather narrow and insular, sort of quarantined in a way that allows them to ignore the wider social and cultural implications of their analyses. So rather than retreat from this fraught intersection or just limit ourselves to one tiny corner of it, we're going to just jump right into the thick of it. Okay. So the debate is typically cast as one between naturalism and normativism, or what's sometimes referred to as objectivist accounts and subjectivist accounts, with a hybrid view that combines elements of each staked out in between. So despite decades of debate, there's still no consensus as to which of these three dominant accounts of disease is preferable and why. And each account has been shown to have serious problems. And there's only so many bullets that a theory can bite until it's dead. Indeed, one might be forgiven for concluding that the concept of disease is hopelessly beyond repair, and thus for recommending that we eliminate it entirely. So the philosopher of science, Mark Arashevsky, for example, arrives at precisely this skeptical conclusion. Now, one thing that's good about Arashevsky's critique in particular, even though I don't ultimately find it persuasive, is that he takes a less insular view of disease than do most philosophers of science. And so what I'm going to try to do today is reframe the disease debate by way of examining some of Mark Arashevsky's sweeping criticisms. Although I think he's right that existing theories are in need of refinement, I don't actually think they suffer from the particular problems that Arashevsky thinks they suffer from uh, and that other critics have identified as well. But I do think they suffer from other serious deficits, and this is going to push me to propose a modified hybrid view that I think avoids the most serious problems as well as the ones that Mark raises. Issues are going to remain, and I'm going to flag some of them, but I don't think they warrant purging the disease concept from our medical vocabulary, given the ethical costs of doing so. Obviously, this is not going to be the last word on disease, but I do hope at the very least to make this case that the standard diametric opposition of naturalist objectivist accounts versus values-based subjectivist accounts is a false dichotomy. And more importantly, that whatever conception of disease that we choose, it should be tailored to the role that the concept plays in the institutional settings in which it's deployed. In other words, I'm not doing pure conceptual analysis. I'm not trying to figure out what some community of language users mean when they utter or write the word disease. And I'm not trying to derive an account of disease via something like reflective equilibrium, testing it against counterintuitive uh, thought experiments and counterexamples and so on. As we'll see, it's precisely this sort of traditional approach that I think has gotten existing accounts of disease into trouble. Instead, what I'm going to do is something more like what we might call conceptual role analysis, something that's shaped less by common usage, more by the role that the concept plays and should play in the institutional environments in which it's embedded. So I think that any attempt to reframe the disease discussion should include not only an answer to that basic skeptical challenge that I mentioned, but also a meta-methodological critique that's guided by our expectations of what we think the disease concept ought to do, given that medical diagnosis is woven into a complex network of healthcare institutions. And given this institutional embeddedness, I think conceptual role analysis is the better way to go. Okay. So let's begin with disease naturalism. So naturalistic approaches vary. But common to all of them is that they propose definitional criteria that are supposed to be purely descriptive. That is, they claim to advert solely to biological matters of fact rather than to any moral value judgments. 
And the relevant matters of fact are typically glossed in terms of some biotheoretic understanding of this function. Now, there's several dominant accounts of biological function, and I'll have some more to say uh, about those in a moment. But the thrust uh, of naturalistic accounts is that whether a trait is dysfunctional is determined by facts about the biological world, not uh, the contingent interests of researchers, the goals of policymakers, or the desires of patients. So dysfunction can be disvalued and mitigated, and it often is. Function can be valued and promoted, and it often is. But these value and policy judgments don't enter into the analysis of function, and so they don't figure in naturalistic accounts of disease. And so it is that naturalistic theories appear, at least on their face, to be moral value free. Oh, so something's happening with my slides here. Sorry about that. OK, hopefully it'll get going. Well, one major critique of disease naturalism claims that the naturalistic approach fails on its own terms. That is, it claims to offer these value-free definitions of disease that's grounded in objective biological facts about function, but then they wind up importing values after all. So of course, there's always going to be epistemic values associated with concept choice in the sciences. So the claim here has to be about moral values, specifically moral values infiltrating disease classification. That although naturalistic accounts purport to be purely descriptive, in practice, disease classifications are shaped often insidiously. Uh, uh, OK, that's good. Uh, are shaped often insidiously by covert value judgments of the robustly normative kind. So a commonly touted example is the classification of homosexuality. So for much of the 20th century, homosexuality was considered a disease by the American Psychiatric Association, by the WHO. And the fact that homosexuality is no longer considered a disease by these institutions reflects a shift in social values, not a new understanding of biofunctional facts. Now, it's true that there have been some speculative hypotheses floating around uh, that you know, homosexuality may have adaptive roots. But of course, the reason that the APA and the WHO no longer classify it as pathological is not because these functionalist theories of homosexuality have been vindicated. What's changed, of course, is the way the trait is valued. So homosexuality is no longer seen as disvaluable by large segments of the population, at least developed populations. And pathologizing is now widely thought to have grave psychological costs that are not offset by any corresponding benefits. And some theorists even argue that how a, a disease account classifies homosexuality should actually serve as a litmus test for its philosophical viability. Now this criticism gains some traction when one realizes that the homosexuality case is not an isolated incident. There are numerous cases where disease classification has clearly tracked changes in social values. This is true of masturbation, for example, in the 18th and 19th centuries and some psychiatric illnesses in the 20th century. But this line of attack really doesn't do much to undercut the naturalist position because the naturalist can just say, well, these are cherry-picked, these are mistakes. They just reflect the occasional political influence in what's otherwise a value-free classification scheme. In other words, the naturalist can say these cases, they're not proper philosophical counterexamples, which show that you know, the necessary and sufficient conditions that naturalists cite uh, fail. At best, they show that in practice, disease classification has been driven by moral judgments. By the way, another strategy that some of the naturalists do is to shrink the intended scope of their theory so that it ends up covering a much narrower linguistic community, like just pathologists, for example. And then they respond to the kinds of counterexamples by saying, you know, or, uh, uh, or, or showing that it's contrary to practice by saying that these kinds of clinical applications of disease are just irrelevant to what it's trying to do. It's doing a more targeted theoretical analysis. Christopher Bors, who's the preeminent disease theorist, we're going to look at him, uh, his view in a minute, he began with this very broad linguistic analysis of disease, but over the years he just keeps restricting it, restricting it, restricting it. Now it's just about pathologists. Okay. 
So given these responses available to the naturalist, a more effective line of critique would be to show that disease naturalism is incoherent, that it fails on its own terms, not merely an application because it's not grounded in biology alone. And this is the heart of Arashevsky's critique. And if it's persuasive, it could be marshaled into a criticism of hybrid theories as well because these are going to also incorporate a biological dysfunction component. Okay. So Arashevsky's first charge is that naturalistic accounts presuppose some kind of pre-Darwinian notion of species. And his second charge is that values end up infiltrating naturalism and its very foundations. So Arashevsky's target is Bors's biostatistical theory of disease, which is far and away the most influential naturalistic account, although I don't think it should be. And I'll return to that. Um, but I'm going to quickly examine these criticisms, show why they don't actually make contact with Bors's theory, and that even if they do, they're going to fail to generalize to other naturalistic accounts that rely on different notions of function. And I'll go through this relatively quickly. Okay, so here's what Bors did. He originally sets out to articulate a theory of disease that could make sense of diverse phenomena that we take to be diseases, from infections and birth defects to cancers, limb paralyses, and so on. And he argues that in fact, there's something that's common to each of these. Namely, they all implicate biological dysfunctions. So Bors introduces this notion of what he calls normal function, which he caches out in terms of a statistically typical contribution of some part or process in individuals of a given reference class to survival and reproduction. Sounds like a mouthful, but we'll unpack it a little bit. Um, and when traits depart from normal functional efficiency by some stipulated degree, they're deemed dysfunctional and hence diseased or pathological against the standard of what he's calling normal species design. Okay. So Arashevsky's first charge is that naturalists can't appeal to things like normal function or species typical design because biology just doesn't have the resources to say what's natural or normal or what the natural or normal traits for a species might be. And the reason there are no natural or normal traits is because species are historical kinds, they're historical entities, they're lineages comprised of evolving populations. They're not natural kind classes that organisms belong to because they have, you know, possess certain essential natural characteristics. And the problem, according to Arashevsky, is that Bors' appeal to these kinds of idealizations, like normal species design, must presuppose some kind of pre-Darwinian notion of species, like an archetype against which this function is measured. And if so, it would render, this would render the naturalistic tenor of the theory questionable. And in fact, the archetype charge is something that you'll see very commonly leveled against Bors. Well, can so many critics be getting Bors wrong? I actually think they are. But in fairness, Bors's account brings it on itself because he makes this unfortunate appeal to what he calls species design. And that really smacks of archetype thinking. Um, still, I think it's clear that Bors's view doesn't ultimately rest on any kind of archetypal notion of species, nor does it repose on any kind of bioessentialism. So why does Bors feel compelled to introduce this notion of species design? The reason he actually does this is because if we took, if contributions to survival and reproduction were actually indexed to a given particular organism, then we wouldn't be able to recognize as diseases all sorts of uncontroversial pathologies that never causally contributed to a particular organism's survival and reproduction, like congenital defects. So the contribution to survival and reproduction has to be indexed to the species in some fashion, and that's why Bors introduces the species typical design. But the regularities that he's talking about are not essential in any way. They're just statistical regularities produced by thoroughly Darwinian causes. Uh, I can talk about that later if we want. But Bors's account is going to stumble for other sorts of reasons that I'm going to get into shortly. But I don't think it could be faulted for being non-naturalistic on the grounds that it presupposes some kind of a pre-Darwinian notion of species. So the second reason that Arashevsky thinks that Bors's account fails on its own terms 
is that it attributes the goal of survival and reproduction to humans, and this attribution is itself a value judgment. So clearly, have, humans have all sorts of goals. Many of them have absolutely nothing to do with biological survival and reproduction. And insofar as Bors's account rests on this claim that it's the goal of human life, then it rests on some kind of morally loaded value assumptions that don't follow from any scientific descriptions, and so it fails on its own terms. Now, there's no doubt that biological fitness and human well-being come apart, sometimes dramatically. This is a theme of a lot of my work in bioethics. It's also a theme of my uh, forthcoming book with Alan Buchanan, which we're going to talk about later in the week. And the decoupling of fitness and well-being, I think, is going to cause all sorts of problems for the naturalist later on. But the problem is that Ereshe with Ereshevsky's charge is that nowhere does Bors actually say survival and reproduction is a central goal of human beings qua intentional rational agents. Bors's claim is that this goal sits at the apex of the hierarchy of goals that can be attributed to biological processes. So the goals that have that goals that, the, that uh, Bors has in mind are biological. They're not psychological. And this is why Bors can claim that he, you know, he has offered a universal theory of disease. It applies to all life, not merely to life that can value things. And it fits with Bors's insistence that diseases may or may not impinge on human life in ways that warrant treatment. There are other problems that I, with talking about survival as a distinct goal of organisms, as Bors and many of his contemporary defenders, like Dan Hausman, do. The problem is not that it injects undefended moral values into the mix. The problem is that survival actually is only instrumental to reproductive success, to biological fitness. It's not a biological goal in itself. And it's certainly not the apex goal of the organism, as Bors likes to say. This is a pretty straightforward point to make. Because survival is relative to fitness. Obviously, survival is relative to fitness. If you don't survive very long, you're not going to survive uh, to reproduce if you get off too quickly. But survival and fitness are going to come apart. Survival ends up getting toggled by natural selection in different environments. Some lineages are selected for short lifespans, minimal tissue maintenance, large numbers of offspring. These are so-called R-selected strategies. You might hear a little bit more about this later when we talk about invertebrates. Yeah. <laughs> um, and other lineages are selected for slower gestation, longer lifespans, more tissue maintenance, fewer offspring of higher quality. These are case-selected strategies. And it's fitness. Expect, it's fitness that's deciding this balance. And it's fitness that's plausibly at the apex biological goal if biological processes can be said to have any goals at all. So when a male praying mantis offers itself up to lunch to a female that it just copulated with, it's not pathological. It's functioning precisely as it ought to function, biologically speaking, because fitness is the goal, not survival. And this behavior has been selected for. In fact, the males end up copulating a lot more effectively after they've been decapitated by the female. Scary thought. And the same goes for carpenter ants, the original suicide bombers who defend their nest by exploding in suicidal bursts of toxic glue. Okay. Now this macabre note brings us to a key point, and that is even if we were convinced that Bors's account is essentialistic, that it smuggles in moral values, the aspiring disease naturalist has an easy way out, I think. She could simply avoid these difficulties by adopting what's known as a selected effects account of biological function. So this is one that adverts to a history of natural selection for one or more effects. These effects are termed as proper functions. Sufficient departures from these proper functions constitute dysfunctions. Indeed, Bors's appeal to species-typical contribution to survival and reproduction looks a lot, by contemporary lights, like an underdeveloped fitness concept. OK, so what's, what's exactly the difference? So the key difference between Borsian normal function and what I'm calling selective effects function relates to the time frame to which these fitness contribu contributions are indexed. So on the Borsian model, the time frame in which we're supposed to measure these fitness contributions, either goes, it goes unspecified or it looks to be synchronic, which leads to a well-known problem of universal diseases. So 
if you have certain uncontroversial diseases, like say lung pathologies due to smoking or pollution, if they become predominant in a population, then the underlying trait's contribution to survival and reproduction to fitness is no longer statistically typical. And then Boris can't say that these are, he can't classify these things as diseases anymore. And the problem is that Boris's account doesn't have any resources to single out particular environments as sort of disease-causing environments without begging the question. Okay. A more serious problem that actually I think has never been recognized in the literature with Boris's view uh, is what I'm going to call what I call the problem of medical environments. So in contemporary societies with sophisticated medical infrastructure, many pathologies are no longer, they don't detract from survival and reproduction anymore because medical prosthetics, like broadly conceived, effectively nullify the fitness differences uh, between normal and pathological variants. So as with the case of harmful environments, Bors' view has no resources to exclude med medicine or other fitness equalizing institutions from the relevant environment in which statistically typical contributions, in which fitness contributions, are measured. And if this is right, then actually even the most uncontroversial diseases that are not universal or predominant in a population, like infections, limb paralysis, and other things, can't be diseases so long as medicine neutralizes their fitness effects. This is a huge problem for Bors, I think, and he, I, I think it's not survivable, actually. Anyway, the selected effects account is just immune to all these problems because it's indexed to evolutionary time frames, evolutionary adaptation. So the failure of some part to perform its naturally selected function remains, regardless of whether that failure becomes universal in a population, even if its fitness effects get nullified by medical institutions. And Bors's account might overcome these problems by picking a, deep, a deeper time frame against which to measure these uh, fitness effects. But the further back it goes, the more his statistical account begins to re resemble a selected effects account. Do I still have a fair bit of time? Or am I running out? Oh, we started at 3.30, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank God. Okay, no, I'm good. Okay. And that actually wouldn't be a bad thing if Boris tried to go deep with his contributions to fitness, and if he started to look like a selected effects account of function, because the selected effects account has so many advantages that make it better suited for a naturalistic conception of disease. For one thing, it's completely immune to this archetype criticism. It makes no reference to species design. It's not vulnerable to the charge that it's shaped by moral values because it adverts to just this history of selection for effects. Whether it's valued or not, that's a further analysis. It has explanatory virtues over Boris's account because it tells you here are the historical mechanisms that explain why species-typical traits are in fact species-typical. And also it allows us to talk about disease as this universal property of life because to the extent life exists, it's going to be cobbled together by natural selection and therefore it's going to be subject to dysfunction. And finally, I think it has operational advantages because I somewhat ironically think it's actually easier to infer functions that have been honed over millions of years than it is to gauge contributions to fitness, survival, and reproduction in modern ecologies that poorly reflect the, envir the ancestral environments in which these species typical traits congealed. So little is lost and much is gained for the defender of naturalism by substituting this ideological or selected effects account of function for Boris's account. Nevertheless, I think it avoids many of the criticisms that beleaguer Bors. It's not going to get us all the way to a full-fledged theory of disease. Naturalistic accounts don't fail on their own terms, but neither are they going to meet the desiderata uh, for a concept of disease in human medicine. So before I explain why they actually fail, I'm just going to take a quick look at some explicitly value-based conceptions of disease and their limitations, because that's going to help me motivate my own view. All right, so in a very brief, the normatist approach that says disease classifications reflect value judgments about biomedical states of affairs and nothing more. 
Healthy biomedical states are those we wish to attain or sustain. Diseased are the ones we wish to avoid. That's it. Now, there are some obvious problems that just pop up, right? First, because you're going to have cross-cultural differences in how biomedical states are valued or disvalued. The normative view is going to imply that the same state can simultaneously be a disease in one culture but not in another. Even within a single culture, attitudes are subject to change. So the same state could be a disease at one time, not at another. So the contingent nature of disease, obviously this is inconsistent right, with what naturalists want to get out of the concept. But it shouldn't trouble the normativists because, after all, that's precisely their point. That naturalistic notions of disease are really just social constructions in the end. I think a more significant problem for the normativists is that some biomedical states are widely disvalued but not widely considered to be diseases, like short stature, pattern baldness. And these kind of counterexamples suggest that our evaluative judgments and, uh, and biological functions come apart and our intuitions of what disease are come apart in a way that the normativist needs to be able to deny. But I actually don't think that's the biggest problem. Maybe the biggest problem with normativism is that it lacks the resources to identify ethically problematic abuses of the concept. For example, it doesn't permit us to say, well, politically or religiously motivated cases of pathologization, which cause grave injustices, were in fact misclassifications of disease. And the problem is that if diseases are classified solely in virtue of some sufficient uh, level of community consensus about how a biomedical state should be valued, whether this consensus is popular, expert, class-based, power-based, whatever it is, then there are no grounds to say that the disease uh, concept has been misused or abused in these cases. And that's why something more than whether a biomedical state of affairs is disvalued. Something biological has to get brought into the picture to kind of rein in normativism. OK. So the logical move here is to draw on biology while at the same time preserving the role of moral judgments in disease classification. So enter the hybrid approach. Jerome Wakefield's version is the most influential. So he proposes that we equate disease with harmful dysfunction, where harmful is a value term determined by social norms. And dysfunction is a scientific term referring to the failure of a mechanism to perform a natural function for which it was designed by evolution. Now, Arashevsky argues that hybrid accounts suffer the same fate as naturalistic accounts because they involve biological function. But I've shown that selected effects could deal with that without, while avoiding the problems that saddle Bourse. The real problem, I think, with hybrid accounts is not that it incorporates biofunction, nor that it incorporates moral values. The real problem, I think, with the hybrid account is that, like the normativist account, it's just not normative enough. It describes how biomedical states are valued, but it makes no claim about whether they're properly valued as such. So recall that you know, disease naturalists are going to have trouble with the homosexuality case because it looks straightforwardly dysfunctional from the standpoint of fitness. Naturalists will be keen to stress, well, if we say that homosexuality is disease, we're not saying that it should be disvalued. Uh, or should be treated by the medical community. But not surprisingly, this is of little comfort to many theorists and activists. So in contrast, on normativist and hybrid views, homosexuality is rightfully declassified because it's no longer disvalued by the relevant populations. And so those views pass this homosexuality litmus test, but they do so for the wrong reason. The reason why it shouldn't be considered a disease is not because predominant social norms don't currently disvalue them. It's because disvaluing homosexuality is not rationally justified and causes objective harm and injustice. Wakefield basically tries to say, well, you mean, what about homophobic societies? And he tries to rely on the fact, well, maybe in homosexuality, there's really no biological, proper biological dysfunction. So even they're wrong about it. 
But then that's going to make the whole analysis contingent uh, on, uh, you know, on the evolutionary verdict. And I think he, he, it, it's not going to turn out that the way you, that, that you want it to turn out. So weakly normative hybrid accounts like Wakefield's can make some sense of some misapplications. Like it can make sense of the masturbation case because it says there's no biological dysfunction. But they don't have the resources to characterize as misclassifications dysfunctions, biological dysfunctions that are wrongfully or perniciously disvalued. And I actually don't think it's simply an oversight. I think this is an inevitable outcome of the methodology that's been employed in the disease literature. The reason why hybrid accounts are keyed into these sociological patterns of valuing rather than proper moral evaluation is not just because philosophers of science wouldn't touch objective ethics with a 10-foot pole, although I think that that's true. It's also because they're doing traditional conceptual analysis. They're asking, what does some community of language users mean by the term disease when they use it? And then they use reflective equilibrium to balance that out. And the problem is that conceptual analysis of this sort lacks the thickly normative aughts that I think will help us make sense of pernicious misapplications. So what's needed is not only a theory of disease that takes biology and normativity seriously, but also one that takes institutions seriously. So in the remaining time, I'm going to outline and motivate such an account. So my proposal is to introduce this thickly normative gloss on the evaluative component to hold that a biomedical state is a disease only if it implicates a biological dysfunction that's properly disvalued. This might seem like a minor modification, but I think it succeeds where naturalist, normativist, and weakly normative hybrid accounts have fallen short. So first, a truly thick normative evaluation avoids the cultural contingency issue that, that afflicts the other views because objective normative standards are not contingent on sociological patterns of evaluation that change over space and time. This is not, of course, to say that our views regarding what should be disvalued are fixed, but the point is that whether a biomedical state is a disease doesn't change with the moral whims of society. And this stability is due to two objective components. There's biological dysfunction and rational moral justification. So I've already suggested that biological dysfunction can be delineated without recourse to moral values or archetypes. The view that morality can be objectively justified, I think, is also not terribly controversial. I think it's held by most contemporary thinkers who are not moral skeptics. And bioethical discussions generally proceed on the assumption that objective moral justification is possible. But what uncontroversial things can we say about this element, given that the nature of morality is contested? Well, I think at the very least, we can say that reasons independent of popularity and tradition, and popularity and tradition have to be adduced in order to justify the evaluation. I think we could say that the re these reasons shouldn't be arbitrary or bigoted. They shouldn't repose on false empirical claims or inscrutable religious beliefs. And they should be subject to critical scrutiny and revision. More tentatively, we might say that the moral justification should be based on considerations that are limited to the flourishing or well-being of the individual with the condition, that it shouldn't be based on indirect costs for society. And one reason to think that it should be limited in this way is that the central person of medicine, of contemporary medicine at least, is not to serve the non-health goals of society, nor even to maximize medical well-being. Rather, the central purpose is to enable patients to make informed, autonomous decisions about their health and course of treatment in a way that's consistent with their own values. So this is not to essentialize the purpose of medicine, but simply to say that our best current ethical thinking prioritizes patient self-determination over other sorts of interests like social and economic interests, or even over healing. But the focus on individual flourishing can create problems, I think, where the conditions for flourishing are themselves shaped by unjust social norms. So for instance, some conservative groups in the US have argued that being gay is associated with all sorts of mental illnesses, 
drug abuse, relationship stability, and so on. Of course, the reason why there are these causal correlations is that there's still a massive stigma associated with homosexuality, much less support for LGBT communities. And if we look solely at, at the individual prospects of flourishing without considering the unjust social environments in which this flourishing plays out, then we might conclude that being gay is properly disvalued. Gay conversion therapies would be warranted. So avoiding reinforce, to avoid uh, reinforcing existing injustice, the moral evaluation, I think, has to take into account the legitimacy of the social environment in which these individual flourishings take place. And I think this is going to be even more plausible when we see that the disease concept itself, I'm going to argue at least, is motivated uh, by considerations of justice. What other things can we say that's unproblematic about moral justification? We could say that it's true that certain core values like self-determination and so on enjoy widespread support, uh, but the fact that this consensus exists, say, in medical ethics, doesn't, is not what justifies or secures their objectivity. So just as biological dysfunctions remain dysfunctions, even if they become universal in the population, so too is it irrational. Uh, so is irrational moral justification unaffected by statistical patterns of norm adherence. So much more important than the popularity of a norm of things like, you know, from a moral epistemic perspective is the nature of the processes through which that norm was developed. Did it exclude the perspective and interests of moral stakeholders? Did it take into account the best available empirical information, uh, scientific expertise, and so on? And it's important to note that you know, we can be committed to moral objectivity without presupposing some kind of strong moral realism. There are many ways of understanding moral objectivity without believing that moral properties are uh, mind, human mind independent or cosmic or anything like that. So a second advantage is that we can make sense of these historical misapplications and abuses of the concept while recognizing that there's been much progress in our understanding of which traits actually constitute diseases as new normative and biological information has come in. So a growing appreciation for value pluralism, the diversity of reasonable perspectives on the good life, has transformed our understanding of which states are disvaluable. And it's done this in part by correcting for these sort of imperialistic conceptions of human good that historically were tinged with you know, racial, gendered, socioeconomic subtexts. And at the same time, the discovery that certain conditions have neurodysfunctional bases, like addiction, mood disorders, and so on, has reduced the social stigma and brought them more, fir more firmly within the purview of medicine. And this leads into a, a third virtue of the proposed, proposed view, which is that I think it interacts quite well with disabilities rights critiques that view the disease concept literature as sort of overly metaphysical in that it's failed to take into account the first person phenomenology of patients, families, other stakeholders with lived experiences of these underlying conditions. So many conditions like deafness and autism have been reclaimed uh, by patients and researchers as morally valuable expressions of human identity and diversity, not as diseases to be eliminated. Now, whatever one thinks about these arguments, you could certainly be skeptical of them, but the point is that the resources for making those arguments and for countering them are contained in this sort of thickly normative component of the hybrid view that I'm proposing. And this brings us to the biggest advantage of this account, and that is it takes institutions seriously, and so it avoids the undesirable fallout that comes from attempting to sever disease classifications from their social and ethical ramifications, as naturalistic theories try to do. So as I noted earlier, Bors has just kept winnowing the aim of his theory to avoid any clinical implications. Now, if the naturalistic approach is construed as a biological project, I actually think it's quite promising if you use a selected effects account of function. But as a medical project, I don't think it is. The hybrid account does a better job of handling some of the clinical aspects, but it still doesn't capture the institutional and ethical dimensions of the concept. 
But the advantages of a thickly normative hybrid account like I'm proposing are not coming for free. They force us to wrestle with the challenges of establishing, on the one hand, biological dysfunction and moral justification on the other hand. But I think that this double burden is worth it because there are institutional costs that flow from dispensing with either the biological dysfunction component or the normative evaluation component, as well as uh, from eliminating the disease concept itself. So to appreciate these costs, we have to see medicine, and in particular, disease diagnosis, as a practice that's embedded in a diverse network of healthcare institutions. These include biomedical research sectors, managed care organizations, provider networks, all interacting with patients uh, in legal regulatory regimes to coordinate the delivery of healthcare. So the goal of a healthcare system is to manage biomedical states in large demographically diverse populations and to do so in a way that's consistent with basic ethical principles. Now the disease concept that gets deployed here is inferentially rich. It carries the information that some biomedical state is disvaluable because it significantly interferes with well-being or flourishing or opportunity, which in turn has significant ramifications for how we dole out limited healthcare resources and how they're prioritized. So the disease concept helps ensure that allocation of medical resources is carried out efficiently and fairly at the population level. And it does this by prioritizing segments of the population who tend to be, biomedically speaking, worst off, and that fall rather than those that fall along the sort of quote unquote normal range of variation. In other words, by prioritizing treatment over enhancement. So my thinking on this has been influenced quite a bit by Alan Buchanan and the other three horsemen uh, in their epic book, From Chance to Choice. And the basic idea is just that, well, biomedical conditions are going to vary in their impact on well-being. And the same state is going to vary in its impacts from individual to individual. So infertility, for example, may be a convenient form of birth control for some, but for others it may have significant disvalue. So by abstracting away from these sorts of variations, the disease concept can serve basically as this population level heuristic that tracks statistically, uh, statistical sort of ethically relevant classes of biomedical variation. We can't do this we can't look at these impacts on a case-by-case -case basis when we're talking about populations. And so healthcare allocation has to rely on heuristics for deciding when, you know, which biomedical interventions are going to be prioritized. And the argument is that drawing a treatment enhancement distinction, not a hard and fast one, but the distinction, allows us to prioritize certain biomedical conditions that tend on average to have the greatest impact on well-being and opportunity. So this is the logic, but I'm not going to do it to save a little bit of time. Okay. Now, this is not to say that healthcare should never extend to non-disease states or to the enhancement of normal function. So disease diagnosis is definitely not the end-all and be-all of healthcare allocation for two reasons. One, disease is not the only biomedical state to interfere with well-being and opportunity. And two, some enhancements of normal function may produce sufficient gains to well-being that they ought to be included. So for example, to the extent that uh, they become safe and effective, cognitive enhancements may have major impacts on well-being an opportunity that justify affording them a high allocation priority. But I think the disease concept does a reasonable job of tracking the kinds of conditions that tend to impact on morally relevant outcomes. And so it provides sort of an implementable and consistent baseline for healthcare allocation decisions. Now, one might argue that medical allocation shouldn't be made on the basis of a treatment enhancement distinction, that instead we should just look at directly at the expected effects of every medical intervention, regardless of whether they target disease. And I think that's a legitimate debate to have, but I think, and Julian can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that all healthcare systems, or all developed healthcare systems, at least the ones that I know at, 
Noah rely very heavily on the treatment enhancement distinction. And so any concept of disease should be suited, I think, to this institutional purpose. And I think the existing accounts of disease are ill-suited to this task. So on naturalistic accounts, the social and ethical dimensions of disease, disease classification are quite literally, literally irrelevant. So naturalistic accounts are non-starters. Better just to consider them biological accounts. But neither are, are these institutional goals met if we embrace a purely normativist approach to disease, regardless of whether it's uh, weakly or thickly normative. So to dispense with the biological dysfunction component would mean classifying as a disease any biomedical state of affairs that's disvalued or properly disvalued. And I think that the problem with that is it doesn't allow the disease concept to have that role of prioritizing biomedical conditions that tend to interfere most with well-being. Many states of affairs are disvalued, and yet we have good moral reasons to insist that enhancements of normal function, generally speaking, will receive lower priority. So weakly normative hybrid accounts do better, better in many regards than naturalist and normativist ones, but they still can't make sense of misapplications that are caused by pernicious or improper moral evaluations. Okay. So let's just briefly return to the Arashevsky's skeptical conclusion and the march toward eliminativism. So Mark recommends that the disease concept be abandoned. Instead, we should just talk about biomedical states of affairs that are disvalued. That's, what, that's the replacement term that he suggests. But as we've seen, the disease concept is woven into the institutional fabric of healthcare, and I think that there are ethical justifications for this that are not satisfied by Arashevsky's proposed replacement term. It, first of all, because it lacks a biofunctional component, the replacement term doesn't do anything to serve the goals of healthcare prioritization. And because it lacks a proper evaluation component, it doesn't protect against the historical hazards that are associated with abuses of the concept. So the eliminativist approach is supposed to, I mean, the reason what's motivating it is that it's supposed to guard against the infiltration of values into classification schemes that then get peddled as naturalistic descriptions. But I think that what drives misapplications of disease is not so much the smuggling of value into these descriptive classifications, but rather the improper valuation of states. And if this is right, then eliminating the disease concept would fail to address the risks that motivate eliminativism in the first place. And what about the existence of controversial cases? So controversial cases are going to be controversial on my view because either they don't implicate a biological dysfunction clearly or because it's unclear whether the underlying dysfunction ought to be disvalued. And these are two problems that are especially acute in the realm of mental illness. And in such cases, the disease label ought to be used cautiously or avoided, but we don't have to conclude from this that it be abandoned altogether. Okay, so let's take stock. So the analysis of concepts, whether moral or scientific, can't take place, I've argued, in an institutional vacuum. Naturalistic theories of disease don't succeed, not because they fail on their own terms, like Arashevsky and others have argued, but because they don't suit the role that the concept currently plays in our healthcare institutions. Normativist and weakly normative hybrid theories don't do much better in this regard, and so I've defended this modified hybrid view that I think comes closer to vindicating the institutional role of disease. Now, I don't intend this argument to extend to other sciences that make their own fruitful use of the concept. So theoretical unification, scientifically speaking, is a worthwhile pursuit, but the concept of disease that's useful, say, in veterinary medicine or in forestry science may simply be ill-suited to the aims of human medicine. 
I'm not advocating a pluralistic approach to disease within the domain of human health care, as actually Bors seems to be doing by trying to avoid clinical applications. Because I think that the institutional aspects speak strongly in favor of conceptual unity in that domain. But everything I've said suggests that a truly Procrustean approach to disease, like one based solely on biological dysfunction, would be a really poor fit for human medicine. And I think a similar case could be made uh, for debates over medical definitions of death, where the virtues of having some universal biological definition have to be weighed against the role that the death, that the death concept plays in healthcare, such as in organ procurement. Now, this is all to acknowledge that medicine is an irreducibly normative discipline. And this may be disquieting to some, but to me it provides all the more reason for medical theory to further engage with ethical thought. The account I've put forward doesn't resolve all problems, and it raises a whole bunch of new ones, which I'd be happy to talk about. But at the very least, I hope to have made a persuasive case that we should strive to eliminate disease, but not its very concept. Thanks. <laughs>